Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our December 12, 2017 event, an evening of memoir featuring Abir Hoke, Sarah Perry, and Jason Tugaw. This is Jason's first appearance at LIC Reading Series, and it was also an evening that we had some cupcakes because we like to celebrate, and it was very close to Sarah Perry's birthday, I believe, so we sang Happy Birthday to Sarah to start the evening. If you want to hear the panel discussion from this event, just listen to our next episode. But for now, let's jump into LIC Bar, where I'm introducing our first reader of the evening, Abir Hoke. All right, so our first reader tonight is Abir Hoke. And she is a Nigerian-born Bangladeshi-American writer and photographer. She likes, I love this, she likes sliding doors and choosing your own adventure. Me too. Her books include a travel photography and poetry monograph. It's called The Long Way Home out in 2013. A linked collection of stories, poems, and photographs called The Lovers and the Leavers from 2015. And a memoir called All of Which, which was just published this year and is available here. You can find out more at allofwitch.com. Brooklyn Magazine says that she has an uncanny ability to bring particular places to life on the page. And Kirker's Review says that she charts a remarkably intercontinental journey of personal discovery while celebrating hard-won lessons of self-acceptance and calls all of which a quietly moving memoir. Let's give a big round of applause to a beer. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Catherine, and thank you all for being here. Um, I'm going to read for my memoir, all of which, which is uh, set in the three countries I'm from, Nigeria, where I was born, um, the States, and Bangladesh. And so I'm going to read uh, a short chapter from the Nigerian section, where I lived where until I was 13 years old. And this chapter is when I was in sixth grade. And I'm going to read it in the accent I had for the first 13 years of my life, which is a Nigerian accent. Um, each of my chapters starts with a poem, and this one actually is a song, which I'm sorry, I'm going to, you know, my, I already am not a good singer, and now I have a cold, so. Um, this is a pledge of allegiance to Nigeria, which we sang every morning. I pledge to Nigeria, my country, to be faithful, loyal, and honest, to serve Nigeria with all my strength, to defend her unity, and uphold her honor and glory, so help me God. Tiger, tiger. We have started to learn William Blake's old ode to the tiger. We chant with enthusiasm, if not nuance. The heavy rhyme and meter drown any sense that might have accompanied the unfamiliar words. We are too concerned with getting the sounds in the right order to think about what the poem actually means. The University of Nigeria Primary School operates under an almost militaristic regime in its ample tree-demarcated a square in the middle of town. Even the classrooms, simple one-floor structures arranged in sets of three, resemble barracks. Mr. Eze runs grade 6B with an iron fist and a cane made of the stiffest branch that our class monitor, Namdi, can find in the brambles outside. No questions are allowed in class, only answers or silence. We have 
<clears throat> we have three weeks to learn this poem, 10 minutes at the end of each school day. Every, day, every few days, Mr. Eze will add a, a new verse to the right side of the blackboard. <clears throat> at the end of the three weeks, he will erase the poem from the board and we will recite it by heart in front of the entire primary school at assembly. On the first day, we wait silently inside the classroom while Mr. Eze fumes over his last cane, broken and useless at his feet. Outside, Namdi is smoothing the branch he has broken off a tree and is walking reluctantly back to the classroom. <clears throat> when he enters, Mr. Eze walks over and takes the cane from his hand. Our monitor is good-looking, tall for his age, taller even than most of the secondary school boys. This allows him a natural authority, and that, coupled with the respectable school marks, makes him an obvious choice for the coveted position of class monitor. He slips into his chair with an easy grace. I watch from the black back of the classroom as Mr. Eze waves his new cane at us to begin. <coughs> and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart. As half the class stumbles over the word sinews, Mr. Eze raises his cane and snaps it down on Namdi's desk. His bald head is shining with sweat. Silence, he roars. Sinews, not sinews. How many times do we have to do this? He starts down the aisle and asks each person in succession to pronounce the word. A slight deviation <clears throat> results in a sharp and painful rap on the back of an arm or hand or back. Mr. Eze seems to be in generous mood this time. We spent most of the last poem on our knees on the rough cement floors with welts rising on our bodies. Still, I pray for the break bell before he gets to the third row and me, and within moments, I hear a deliberate clang. <clears throat> we pour out of the classroom into the light and space of the sprawling schoolyard. The backfields are filling with boys setting up soccer matches. I head over to the trees by the empty basketball courts to do what all the girls do, which is play clapping games. <clears throat> there are many, but the one we never fail to play at least once a day is Oga. <clears throat> Oga is a complicated dancing and clapping game that involves trying to match balletic foot positions with whoever who is leading the game. Match one of six possible placements with whoever is leading and you become the leader. Everyone has a different dance and clap style for Oga. Mine is low-key and short, nothing fancy. We would play for hours if we could, our hands clapping a ceaseless rhythm under the iron blue sky. In the second week of our practice, the headmistress pays grade 6b a visit. <coughs> our stout teacher waves us into immediate silence as he stands and speaks to her. Although they are the same height, her crisp and colorful headdress makes her seem much taller than him. He returns from his conference with a renewed fervor. <clears throat> Our last poem, Journey of the Magi, set a standard with its complicated referential lines, and the headmistress is, <clears throat> is expecting nothing less from our next recital. We start chanting again. What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp, dare its deadly terrors clasp? We all wonder what an anvil is. Even if we knew, it wouldn't help. The rest of the poem is a mystery. Was a tiger on fire? Was it in hell? But at least it's more exciting than our last poem. That one was boring on top of being incomprehensible. We never figured out what a magi was, and that was just the title. <laughs> the, ti the tiger at least sounds dangerous, full of motion and dark light. 
when the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears? Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? In the third week, we are almost enjoying ourselves. We sway with the rigid and swinging meter of each verse, the sounds stabbing out of our mouths with force and a measure of confidence. <coughs> Even Mr. Eze seems pleased with our progress. The canings have been infrequent. And our regular subject material has been meted with a lighter touch. <coughs> when the three weeks are up, our class lines up in the assembly grounds in front of the headmistress's office. Assembly starts off each school day. Grades four through six are arrayed in a square horseshoe and the headmistress stands in the opening facing us. The sun is beating down, but we don't notice. The morning classes, kindergarten and grades one through three have just been let out and they are streaming out of class down the dirt road to meet their waiting parents. We stand quietly until the headmistress appears. My pinafore is ironed, please perfect. <coughs> I want to tug at my shirt collar, but it's almost time, so I don't move. She waves her arm at us, and in unison, we launch into the Pledge of Allegiance. The sun glares on. Mr. Eze leads his class to the front of assembly, where the 52 of us stand in five neat rows beside the headmistress. I stand in the front row as per height. Our teacher smiles at us, and for a moment, I'm so stunned at this rare display of warmth that I almost forget the first word. Tiger. It's a good starting line. Better than a cold coming we had of it from the Magi poem, which seems weak and anticlimactic. And I don't think any of us really understands the cold. Cold is only in the British books we read with pictures of snow-covered two-story houses with children wearing so many clothes that we feel choked just looking at them. The tiger, though, is a creature of the tropics, lauded in folk tales, pictured in textbooks, trapped and wilting in our little town zoo. The tiger we understand. Thank you. I want to say to Bear for starting this off. I didn't bring up here, though. My queen's uh, <laughs> And I have one because I actually live in Queens. I live in Jackson Heights. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm so excited because you two was in Queens. And my anecdote would be I first came to Queens um, to visit my uncle, who lived here and has been living here for many years, and my cousins who grew up in Jackson Heights as well. And so I never realized I would actually end up here, living here properly. And so it's, it's amazing for me to actually be back in a place that I had seen in my childhood. And I think that's kind of a perfect Queen's anecdote to kick off a night of memoirs. You guys, it's time for reader number two. Reader number two is Jason Tuga. He's got some fans here tonight. And that's it, you're done. Jason Tuga is a professor of literature at City University of New York. He's the author of two nonfiction books, Strange Cases, The Medical Case History, and The British Novel and The Elusive Brain, Literary Experiments in the Age of Neuroscience. Is that right? Yes. Tugal's memoir, The One You Get, Portrait of a Family Organism, available here, is the winner of the 2017, and I never say this correctly, Zank? It is Zank. You say all the letters. You say all the letters. The Zank Nonfiction Prize. You guys won a prize, and it's amazing, and it's here, and you can buy it. 
Excerpts from the one you get have appeared in Boys to Men, Gay Men Write About Growing Up, and Electra Street, a journal of the arts and humanities. He blogs about the relationship between art and science at California.net. The Los Angeles Times calls the one you get a brilliant and moving memoir, and Lambda, Lambda Literary writes that Tugal has captured the contradictions and changes of his childhood, a specific period when parts of the family organism reacted strongly with and against each other and the outside world and filtered it through his own recollections. It's a mix of research, lore, and memory. It's something great made from what he got. Let's give it up for Jason. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, okay. Um, so I have my anecdote. I tried to choose it to be a little bit tied in. I'm going to be reading about sex and drugs, so yeah. my anecdote is a little bit connected. I teach at Queens College, which wow. is in Flushing, and um, our students are delightful. And recently, one of my... I, I have a lot of stories from Queens College, but uh, one of, recently, one of my favorite colleagues who's pretty young, came back from going to the line, that's like the most boring line on campus is where you stand in line to get keys or like parking passes and stuff like that. And he was standing in line and this student turned to him, well, this is how he told it to me. He came back trying to pretend not to be gleeful and said, this student just turned to me in line and said, you look fucking good. And he said, you know, I'm a professor here. And she said, yeah, and you still look fucking good. <laughs> Except only last week, he revealed to me that he lied when he told that story. In fact, what she said was, you look good enough to fuck. <laughs> so that happened in Queens. Um, um, so this book is, uh, it's it, like, well, one of the things it's about is being raised a hippie kid in Southern California, uh, well, raised by hippies in Southern California, and becoming a new wave kid. Um, and then there was this mantra in my family that there was something wrong with our brains, and it was the reason why people acted the way they did. Um, and so I weave through it kind of fanciful takes on brain research, which you're going to get just a teeny taste of here also. Okay. All right. Oh, the only thing you need to know here is that Paul was my best friend since first grade, and his parents were like regular middle-class people, which uh, was very comforting to me. All right. <laughs> Roll, Paul commands, handing me the many-sided lavender dye. Each week, it's a little more. A contest or an experiment with greater risks and stakes. Dungeons and Dragons is a world you create, and once you enter... You want to keep going back until it replaces the real world. My Roland is lawful good, like Christ. As a scientist, he has mental powers, and other characters can only gain other characters can only gain by defeating enemies and acquiring their possessions. Paul's Creon is chaotic good, a cleric. Clerics are never pure good or pure evil. They're spiritual knights, holy men who ride horses, horses and slaughter enemies. They're realists. We're after an elf who stole an anti-demonic spell. Roland can't kill the elf because he's just a petty thief. Lawful good doesn't kill petty. But Creon needs a shield worth 20 points to buy the time it will take to duel him. 
Roland is using his psionic talent to impress the wizard who doles out the shields. The lavender dye sputters and jumps before it lands on 12. Yes, Paul says. Exactly what we needed. That shield is ours. But would Roland give it to Creon if he knows he's going to kill? I'm trying to figure out how Paul can live with chaotic good, a clumsy footfall away from evil. If Roland has doubts, Creon has his sword to persuade him. What time do we have to go to church, I asked. Paul's family was Catholic, and uh, they went to church every Sunday, which meant I went to church every Sunday. Uh, but I didn't get to eat the body and spirit of Christ. I had to sit in the pew while everyone went up there and did that. Um, I mean... <laughs> whatever. <laughs> um, all right, where was I? All right, yes. 9.30 service, so at least by 8.45. Should we go to bed? Under the covers, lights out, neither of us assumes a sleeping position. Back straight, heads facing the ceiling, covers stretched to our chins, eyes closed. It's a standoff. I crack first. Was that a coyote? I made a deal with myself. If I let, I, I made a deal with myself that if I let myself do this tonight, I would never spend the night again. Roland is lawful good. He keeps every promise. I don't think so, Paul says but I can't fall asleep. Either because he doesn't want to make me feel bad or because he's horny too, he accepts my defeat. I'll, I'm like 40%, he says. There's no going back. Old Paul, oh, you don't need that part. Uh, I'm 30, I say. Then I feel a palm cut my penis outside my cotton boxers. You're at least 60, he says. In other words, you're hornier than I am. In retaliation, I reach down and cup his penis already poking through the pee hole of his boxers. So are you, I say, maybe 70. That feels good, he says. I'm like 90 now. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Paul slides the covers down to reveal our two hard penises. We both have full-grown crowns of pubes. I think maybe we thought that, but um, framing them by now. Each week is a little more, a contest or an experiment with greater risks and stakes. Rules make it clinical. We reach for each other's swords, each savoring the rush of prickly warm lust glowing through our nervous systems. You're a hundred now, I mutter, not able to speak in full voice. You too. Paul starts to adjust his body, maneuvering his head in the direction of my penis. We swallow each other's swords. Oh man, I hear Paul say, coming up for air. During 69, we've been discovering time becomes meaningless as it does in D&D. It's 3.45. We have to get up in five hours. We should finish. Okay, I say. Should we swallow, he asks. Okay, I repeat, a little breathless. We, we had not done that before. But be quiet. <laughs> the vents, he says, pointing to the air vents that travel through the roof all over the house, inclu including his parents' bedroom. Tell me when, I whisper. Okay. We're riding the waterbed's little waves. It doesn't take long, only a few more slurpy humps. Now, Paul says, a thick injection coats my mouth. If I'm lawful good, I'll never return. But I do return, and it turns out that, that uh, it's good that I return because in that room is where New Wave started to save us. Um, all right, so this, this is the beginning of the next chapter, which is called Cocaine. I'm sleeping at home even though it's Friday night. Paul has family in town. I'm an expert sleeper. I go under like quicksand. 
It's one of the joys of my life. I float beneath my skin where being 13 means nothing and nobody ever heard of heroin. My father was a heroin addict. Since Stanley, my previous stepdad, the only intrusions on my sleep are fights between other people. Tonight, this never happens. My eyes squint open. The red numbers on the digital clock radio say 1117. I've slept 10 hours. I hear an orchestra of loud whispers spilling over my three-quarter wall. Cheech, my mom's best friend, my mom, and a male relative I won't name. They're trying to keep it down so they don't wake the kid. Where'd he come from? Where's Nick? That's my mom's current boyfriend. I haven't seen this relative in at least a year, and Nick hasn't been here in over a week. He just up and went, Cheech says. Apparently, my mom says, it sure looks that way. Heroin, our visitor says, sniffling like he has a cold. Nick got in a motorcycle accident. He broke his nose again and just about everything else. He was in the hospital for a couple of weeks on morphine. When he got out, he started doing heroin. For the pain, he'd say, when he and my mom thought about it. Now he's gone, thank God. I wish I weren't awake. I can taste the smoke from Cheech's cigarettes. My mouth is dry and cracked and smells like a fart. I have to, I have to pee pretty bad. I want to wrap myself in quicksand and walk to the bathroom. Instead, I squeeze into my Pat Benatar t-shirt and walk one foot in front of the other seven steps to the bathroom door. Speak of the devil, Cheech says, sniffling too. We thought you'd never get out of that goddamn bed. The three of them are sitting around a dining room table, a green trash bag on the floor next to them. There's a scale on the table. I've seen scales like this, but only on TV, in, in an old-fashioned butcher shop. It's got a stainless steel platform and one of those bars like a ruler with numbers on it. Cheech has a little spoon in her hand, measuring little piles of white powder onto the scales. She's got a mirror in front of her with a mountain of the stuff on one half and some hills on the other. My mom and our visitor are scraping the piles into tiny plastic baggies. Scoop, separate, measure, scrape, seal. Where do you even get bags that tiny? I walk into the bathroom and shut the door. I pull my penis over the elastic of my pajamas and let the liquid rise. At first it stings, but just a little. Once the pee starts to really pour, all I feel is warm. It doesn't matter what's stirring in the living room. To prove this to myself, I back all the way to the closed door. I'm at least two feet from the toilet. My aim is perfect. <laughs> my stream smooth, no jagged edges. The stream lands dead center in the bowl and makes a constant gurgle sound. I wish I could pee forever. Would it start to sting again? Would I pee my whole body out until I was invisible or dead? Would the bowl overflow and flood the house? Would I drown and take the adults with me? I never find out because the pee dwindles. I inch closer to the bowl as the stream becomes a, a dribble. I'm impatient about finishing up and don't shake it all off. So when I put my penis back, it makes a quarter-sized stain on my pajamas. Hey, Cheech says to our visitor as I walk back into the room, you should get some business, side for business advice from this kid. He's full of it. God, Cheech, my mom says, sniffling. I sit on the bed for a minute, then put, put some shorts on and walk into the living room, never pausing in my beeline for the front door. I'm going to Nicole's. Hey, Jason, our visitor says, come here. I do. Don't tell anybody about this. Nobody, okay? Okay, it's important. He's serious. Okay. Nice OPs, he says, looking at my shorts. I know the guys that started that company. They're millionaires now. I used to hang out with them when I owned the surf shop. Go ahead, Boog, my mom says. 
three or four days for four, for three or four days they're focused on the bags and the powder scoop separate measure scrape seal like a factory they seem excited i don't tell anybody even now i'm sort of squeamish telling this story cocaine is the least hippie drug imaginable the fact that it replaced pot acid and heroin in my world meant the revolution was over we were fallout riding somebody else's cultural wave in the brain, cocaine is strong and fast, like a bully, but only if it's snorted, injected, or smoked. People have chewed coca leaves for centuries without getting addicted, becoming paranoid, committing suicide, or neglecting families. The powder is a salt, cocaine hydrochloride. It's made through a process of crushing the leaves, soaking by turns in solvents like alcohol and kerosene until crystals, uh, until crystals something form um, crush these and you've got powder that uh, you've got the powder that filled up our house of course cocaine people are always saying this thing like cocaine is the ultimate symbol of the 80s right so maybe I don't know even in its cellular even its cellular properties seem to fit though cocaine inhibits the reuptake of dopamine it bullies dopamine to keep it from entering cells leaving a lot of extracellular dopamine roaming the body making you feel good it alters consciousness more quickly than most drugs, but has a very short half-life. So it dissipates quickly, too. So once you start snorting, you want to snort more to keep that dopamine roaming. Alcohol increases the intensity of a cocaine high and lengthens the chemical's half-life. Scientific studies have demonstrated this, but users figured it out first. My mom and her friends definitely knew it. Unfortunately, if you keep this up for any duration, you're almost certain to get depressed. It wouldn't be surprising if you started to have suicidal thoughts. You might get paranoid or delusional. I hated those long nights. It was bad enough that my mom kept dating junkies, but it got worse when she started snorting cocaine. Just when Nick disappeared and I thought things might get better, the cocaine arrived. The parties, fueled by the dopamine wandering through their bodies, were loud and long. The aftermath of the parties was lingering and bruised. This period, settling in... Uh, the settling in of my adolescence took place in three settings. At home, where you never knew when the adults would pull out the cocaine. At Paul's house, where sex experiments consumed us. And at school, where I landed in the target position, taunted and bullied. Sleep, the one thing cocaine prevented, was the only break I got. Thanks. Thank you to Jason. You guys, there are so many amazing stories so well told in the one you get. And if you, like I, were amazed by the use of pee <laughs> in the telling of a story, it's just like that brilliance is throughout the book. So <laughs> FYI. Um, now we have Sarah Perry, guys. All right. Sarah Perry holds an MFA in nonfiction from Columbia University, where she served as publisher of a Columbia Journal of Literature and Art and was a member of the journal's nonfiction editorial board. She's the recipient of a Writer's Fellowship from the Edward F. Albee Foundation and a Javits Fellowship from the U.S. Department of Education and has attended residencies at Norton Island in Maine and Playa in Oregon. Perry's prose has appeared in Blood and Thunder magazine, Blue Stockings Literary Journal, L.com, and The Guardian. Her memoir, After the Eclipse, which is available right here and is fucking amazing, 
was published in fall 2017 by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. She lives in Brooklyn. She made her way here all the way from Crown's Height, Crown Heights, which is not an easy trek. I will have you know. Um, the New York Times says that Perry is, a, quote, a wonderful writer with an assured sense of when to zoom into her body's somatic response for a piercing immediacy and when to pull back to convey the measured perspective gained through the distance of time. Publishers Weekly gave After the Eclipse a starred review and says this riveting mem memoir navigates the absences, silences, and solitudes that follow trauma and is a testament to one child's ability to survive the unspeakable, one woman's ability to recapture what was lost in a fascinating small town mystery with breathtaking revelations at the end. Let's give it up for Sarah Perry. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I was trying to think of a Queens anecdote, but living in Crown Heights, I don't make it up very often. Um, Queens has this habit of stealing people from me who live lived very close to me. I have a dear friend here. He used to be my best neighbor. Um, and now my former best roommate lives up here. Um, but she has way more space. So her place is like where I spend holidays, like every holiday now. So Queens is kind of home away from home. Um, so it's nice to be up here. Um, the book is about uh, my mother's murder when I was 12 um, and sort of the aftermath of that. But it's also a lot about our relationship before that. Um, and at this point in the book, um, the killer wasn't found for 12 years. And at this point, there's been a DNA match. Um, and I am preparing for the upcoming trial. As a child, I had always been sad that I didn't look more like my mother. When I was very small, this was about my love for her, about wanting to be even more closely connected. In first grade, I begged her to let me dye my hair red and didn't understand why she said no. Anytime someone told me I looked like her, I figured they were just being nice, and I've never been able to shake that feeling. Later, my desire to look like her took on a tinge of jealousy. I imagined bringing future boyfriends home to meet her and seeing in their eyes that they thought she was more beautiful. I didn't want to compete with her, but I wanted to share that power and attention. I felt it was terribly unfair that I hadn't inherited her unique looks. But I liked that we both had blue eyes, even though mine are more gray. When I'm heavier, I look like my father. When thinner, more like my mother. In the pictures accompanying that Portland Press Herald article that year, I am blatantly Tom's daughter. The wait between the DNA match and the trial was projected to be a year, and I decided then that I'd use the time to remake myself in mom's image. I had been dyeing my hair red for years by then, but at that time it was much shorter and darker than hers had been. I had just enough time to grow it out to my shoulders and lighten it gradually until it looked naturally bright auburn. I was the heaviest I'd ever been, and weak and unhealthy from too many late nights and too little exercise. I planned to pare myself down to essentials, muscle and bone, until I was almost as thin as she was. I knew I couldn't expect to hit her 117, not only because she was an inch shorter than me, but also because I had my father's thicker frame. I told the close friend that I was aiming at 130, down from 150, but the real number was 125. That number was like a talisman I carried. I kept it secret. I didn't want to seem crazy, but I wanted to scare the killer. I wanted him to walk into that courtroom and see my mother sitting in the front row, staring him down. I ran a lot that year, sometimes outside, but mostly on the treadmill at the gym. A row of televisions faced the cardio machines, 
And when they weren't taunting everyone with cooking shows, they were playing Law and Order Special Victims Unit. <laughs> That's the best laugh that line's ever gotten. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm funny, too. <laughs> it's so hard to make this book funny. <laughs> Every episode featured a woman's splayed corpse, lengthy discussion of her rape and murder. I tried not to look, but I always caught his pale limb extending from under a tarp, or tangled hair cast over her face. It seemed it was always raining. I resented having these bodies paraded before me while I was trying to gather the strength to face down a real murder. It felt like an absurdity that nobody could see, like OJ all over again. My fellow runners, lined up next to me and going nowhere, seemed to watch with impassive eyes. They couldn't know how my breath caught in my throat, how I wanted to take the remote and hurl it through the nearest screen. But maybe some of them did feel the same choking anger. I looked to the left, to the right, taking in girls with long strides and bouncing ponytails, and other women marching along, faces tense with what looked like desire. Twenty percent of American women are victims of rape. In my hometown of Bridgeton, that would make about 500 women, twice the high school's population of girls. I was then living in a town four times the size of Bridgeton, and so I wondered which of the women around me might be struggling to breathe, keeping their faces neutral and stoic. But we were an invisible club, estranged by the need to cope, to pretend, all day, every day, that everything was fine. To imagine that society and law enforcement and the courts would behave exactly the same way if something so terrible happened to one in five men, that conviction rates would be the same, that the world would find these crimes just as entertaining as it found these, that we weren't being further subjugated by having to be still and take it, pretend outward calm, and enjoy the show. So I did nothing. Even to change the channel would have been to admit weakness. Instead, I tried to enjoy the plot lines, the well-written dialogue. Be a normal person. <laughs> I made sort of. I thought about what I would eat when I got home, whether it was time for that week's weigh-in, time to see how close I was to scaring him. When I ran, I also thought about the night of the murder, the journey from my house to the Venezia, the restaurant where I called 911. The distance was just under a mile, but I didn't run the whole way. I ran from house to house at first, but then in that final long stretch, weakness crept upon me, like strong arms wrapping around my chest, pulling me back. I would run a few steps, but then the air would slice my lungs, my heart would threaten to leap out, and I'd stumble down into a thump-heeled walk. I'd try to catch my breath, try to run again, then I'd break down and walk again. I felt like a failure every single time. I felt like crying every single time. I should have run the whole way, but the truth was that I didn't have the strength. Running continuously would not have made a difference. If I'd arrived at the Venezia 30 seconds or one minute or five or ten minutes earlier, I do not think mom could have been saved. If I'd popped out my window screen and run the second I heard her screaming, I do not think mom could have been saved. But I still felt shame. I still wished that little girl had been able to sprint heroically. This time, I would do everything I could. I would run several hundred miles gather my strength, and whittle myself down until I resembled mom as much as possible. As I slimmed down, I couldn't help but be pleased with my appearance, a happy bonus. When I ate, 
I limited my portions, thinking of the killer at every meal, a strangely intimate connection. If it was true, as the investigator guessed, that he had targeted mom because he had seen her walking along our road and around town, then it was mom's beauty, ultimately, that had gotten her killed. I refused to hide mine. Instead, I polished it like armor. It was important not only to resemble mom, to be thin and strong and able to run, but to be mentally strong, psychologically prepared, so that when I took the stand, there wouldn't be another 991 slip, some moment when I thought I was saying or doing one thing but was really doing another. I wanted to be a good witness, the best. It didn't matter how I felt about any of it, I had to be powerful, persuasive, correct. I continued to take notes during calls from the police, and occasionally I would pull out these notes to fix the details in my mind. As with all important stories, I first had to tell this one to myself. The Attorney General's office made me tapes of my Texas interviews from so many years before, so I could study them and make sure I wouldn't contradict anything the defense had on record. I arranged them in a neat stack of 10 cassettes at perfect right angles to the edges of my unused writing desk, then spent weeks looking at them sidelong. When I finally got the courage to sit down and listen, they were full of unintelligible murmurs and white noise. I sat and listened as the scribble filled my head and felt like a fool for having asked my roommate to make himself scarce that night. The next day I called and asked for new tapes, but I never received them. The tapes would magically work years later, but in the time when I felt I truly needed them, they were a sonic mess I could not untangle. So instead I rehearsed my testimony, staring into the video camera on my laptop, trying to feel something in advance of the real event. I've never watched that recording. It was more of a test than a rehearsal. I needed to know which parts of the story made me the most nervous, the most upset, to figure out where the weak spots were so they wouldn't take me by surprise. It was very important that I not break down on the stand. I wanted the jury to see me as strong and therefore eminently credible, and I wanted the killer to see that he hadn't broken me, that it was impossible, that I would be the one to break him. Finally, I flew to Portland for the trial, arriving on a sunny Sunday in April. That day I met Susie from the Attorney General's office, the victim witness advocate who would be in my life from that point on. Our first task was to sit down together and look at all of the crime scene and autopsy photos so that when they were projected onto a huge white screen at the front of the courtroom, I would be prepared. My college friend Ashley, who now lived in D.C., had insisted on flying to Portland to be with me during the trial, even though I said I'd be fine on my own. She sat with me as Susie showed us pictures one by one, describing the content of each before handing us the glossy three by five. Susie would say, This is of her body on the floor in the kitchen. You can see her leg, but not her head. She knew from experience that having the words first made the images easier to handle. Imagination will often surpass even the worst reality. We handed the pictures around, and as Ashley looked closely at each one, I was deeply grateful and deeply sad. Like my mother, we were pretty young women. I felt like I was showing her what could really be done to us if a man decided to. Big round of applause to Sarah. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. 
Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens. <laughs>